Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 8. Listen, my beloved, behold, he's coming, climbing on the mountains, leaping on the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, he is standing behind our wall. He is looking through the windows. He is peering through the lattice. My beloved responded and said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come along. For behold, the winter is past. The rain is over and gone. The flowers have already appeared in the land. The time has arrived for pruning the vines, and the voice of the turtle dove has been heard in our land. The fig tree has ripened its figs, and the vines in blossom have given forth their fragrance. Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come along. O my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the secret place of the steep pathway, let me see your form. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your form is lovely. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that are ruining the vineyards while our vineyards are in blossom. My beloved is mine and I am his. He pastures his flock among the lilies until the cool of the day when the shadows flee away. Turn, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of Bather. On my bed, night after night, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him but did not find him. I must arise now and go about the city, in the streets and in the squares. I must seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him but did not find him. The watchmen who make the rounds in the city found me. And I said, have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I left them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held on to him and would not let him go until I had brought him to my mother's house. And into the room of her who conceived me, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the hinds of the field, that you will not arouse or awaken my love until she pleases. Father, give us insight. Lord, help us to hear your words sung to our hearts. Holy Spirit, we long to hear tonight the voice of the dove in this place. Lord, as you promised to pour out your Spirit on all mankind in the last days, and truly we have seen your Spirit poured out. And truly we know, Holy Spirit, you are active and at work. Even in the darkness of the world today, there is a great light. And we long to be filled by you and with you and constantly nourished in your presence. And even tonight as we sing the song together and listen to you sing, Lord Jesus, we pray your Spirit would illuminate our hearts to the depth of your love. In Jesus' name, amen. The Talmud records a conversation between a second century rabbi and a Roman matron. She asks him, what has your God been doing since he finished making the world? The rabbi answered, he has been matching couples. This isn't so difficult, said the woman. I can do as much. You may think it is simple, said Rabbi Jose. But it is as difficult as the splitting of the Red Sea. Unmoved by the rabbi's argument, the Roman matron set out to prove her point with an experiment. She took 1,000 male slaves and 1,000 female slaves, lined them up in rows, separated them into couples, and joined the couple's hands in matrimony. The next morning, 
They descended upon her in droves. One with a broken head. Another with gouged out eyes. A third with a broken leg and so on. And the couples demanded that the marriages be annulled. And the matron conceded the point to the rabbi. Jewish marriage is at the heart of the Jewish people. It is not only an important function within Jewish family life, as you might understand, but it is a broader picture. There is a spiritual depth to it that that the rabbis would teach and the Jewish people would have understood, especially back in the day. And so it's no wonder that the Song of Songs exists in the Hebrew Scriptures as that picture of the love of a husband for a wife, God for His people Israel, and as you and I have already seen and recognized, the love of our Jesus, our groom, for His bridegroom, or bride, the church. Jewish marriage always began with the betrothal. But we need to understand something about the betrothal. You Bible students may know this, but betrothal was similar in custom to our engagement in that the marriage was not consummated until the actual wedding day. So a couple would be betrothed, but they would not come together until the actual day of the marriage, until the actual physical marriage. However, different than our engagement, the betrothal was far more serious. Because once you were betrothed, it was sealed at a marriage covenant. When you were betrothed, the only way to get unbetrothed was divorce. Because to be betrothed was to be married. Technically, the bride and the groom were married prior to the actual wedding day at the time of betrothal. Which is why we read in Matthew 1.18, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. So by the time the groom came to receive a bride for himself, for the wedding, all really that was left to do was the honeymoon and the marriage feast. As a matter of fact, there really was no ceremony. The ceremony was the betrothal. And I'm talking about in olden times that the ceremony itself happened at the betrothal. The marriage day was just taking the bride to the place prepared. Going on in there and enjoying each other for that seven-day period. And then the feast and the joy. It's a little different than perhaps we had thought. Even today... When a modern Jewish wedding ceremony is over, typically what happens is the bride and the groom will share a sequestered meal immediately after the ceremony. The two will be set apart in a room by themselves to be alone, to have a meal together. It's called yachud. And it means union or joining. And the whole purpose of it is to look back to biblical times when the bride was brought to the groom's house where she joined with him without formality and the marriage, the betrothal, was consummated. You know, you think about these pictures, these images of marriage and of love and of engagement and betrothal, and it is amazing to me how precisely and beautifully the Song of Songs portrays our story. I said it last week, I said it Sunday, I'll say it again tonight. This is our story. It's the story of the bride, the church, and her groom, Jesus. It's also your story, personally, individually. As the beloved of Jesus, who is your beloved. This is our story. We see here the entire relationship of bride to groom, and it is amazing how similar it is to our story. Not just in the big images of, of the marriage, you know, itself, and the, and the wooing, 
But in what happens throughout the song, I read it and you'll see why tonight. It rings of us. I read it and I see myself and I say, oh, I've done that too. I'm like that. It's an amazing picture that God offers to us. Right now, gang, we are in our betrothal. We're betrothed. We belong to Jesus Christ. If you have given your heart to Jesus, you are betrothed to Him. Oh, the marriage hasn't been so-called consummated, but we're betrothed, which is as serious and binding and sealed a thing as the marriage itself. We are in the relationship that is an eternal one with Jesus, which is why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. We're in our days of betrothal. The wedding's coming. The groom is coming. And that marvelous time with him will follow soon. But right now we're betrothed. Now I remind you in the Song of Songs that it's made up of six smaller songs or what are called canticles. And this is the second canticle tonight. The first one was chapter 1, verse 2, through chapter 2, verse 7. Now chapter 2, verse 8, through chapter 3, verse 5, we could call it Act 2. Or the second canticle. In the first canticle, remember, there was reminiscing going on. Appears to take place in the royal courts as the bride and the groom and the chorus are sharing the story and reminiscing to their meeting, to their coming together, to the discovery of love one for the other. But now, as we begin the second canticle, the bride is back in her country home. She's back in the place where she grew up. She's there. And she's waiting and she's watching for her groom to come. And so this little song begins with, and I'm going to give you six things tonight, if you want to jot these down, it begins with anticipation. Anticipation. Verse 8. Listen, my beloved, behold, he is coming, climbing on the mountains, leaping on the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, he's standing behind our wall. He's looking through the windows. He is peering through the lattice. If we could hear the bride's voice singing this part of the song, I think we would perceive a slight trembling here. A trembling with excitement, expectation, anticipation. She's looking for him. She thinks she sees him coming. She thinks, is that him behind the wall? Is that him peering through the lattice? I think I see him. She can't wait to see him. She longs to be with him. And her heart tells her he is very near. Just on the other side of the wall. Those who know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ know this anticipation, don't you? Just those moments where you stop, the world stops spinning just long enough for you to say, I think I see him peering through the lattice. Oh, I think he's near. We hear Jesus say, be on the alert, Matthew 24, 42. You don't know which day your Lord is coming. And we're reminded, yes, i got to keep watch. It could be any day now. Our hearts quicken in their beating. We hear Him say in John 14.3, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. I quote that again because as I said on Sunday, I think that is the most romantic verse in all Scripture. John chapter 14, verse 3. That one right there. I'm coming to get you, He says. When we think of His coming, nothing thrills us more. Our voices begin to tremble, even as we say, it's soon. He is coming quickly. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. John wrote the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And I read that, and I start to get giddy. 
I really do. It doesn't take much. I'll tell you what, if you're feeling a little, oh, like you're just lumbering along in your spiritual life, if you feel like your feet are heavy, you're not really going anywhere, open up Revelation and just read the first chapter. And you will be excited again. And when I've taught through Revelation, there's just a whole new energy that comes with it, an enthusiasm of anticipation. Yes, He is coming quickly. Yes, it is soon. Revelation 1 verse 7, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him, so it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. Get that. He is to come. He's on the way. Do you anticipate that? Of course we do. We're supposed to. It's part of the plan. The anticipation. But the unbelieving world doesn't get it. They they really don't. In fact, there's a fundamental misunderstanding. Let's just call it what it is. By the world, a misunderstanding of where Bible-believing, born-again Jesus people are coming from. They say things like, it seems like those Christians just can't wait for the world to mourn. Or they say, those people are just looking forward to Armageddon. What's wrong with them? They're all excited over this thing called the Tribulation. And it's interesting to me how the mainstream media has caught hold of a few of these words that they don't fully understand and they're throwing them out there and they're mocking them even as they speak them. They're excited over this thing called tribulation, the wrath of God coming down on what they call a Christ-rejecting sinful world. And so the world will at times look at Christians and say, what is up with you people? You're excited about tribulation, about pain and and terror and the wrath of God. You're excited about that stuff? Let's be absolutely clear. We are not looking forward to carnage. We are looking forward to Christ. It is Jesus I anticipate. It's not the horror of tribulation. As a matter of fact, I am allured by Him. I went with anticipation for Him because He said, Yes, I'm coming quickly. And with John, I say at the end of Scripture, Amen, come Lord Jesus. Because I want Him to come. It is His coming that we anticipate. It is not the devastation of Antichrist. I'm not looking forward to that. I don't plan to be here. But I don't wish that on the world. I'm not looking forward to the wrath of the Lamb. Won't it be great when people just start dying? No. That is so contrary to the core message of Christianity. To the heart of the believer in Jesus. I am not looking forward to the judgments of God coming down on this world. Because the core message of our faith, and we need to speak this more loudly, gang. The core message of our faith is love. It's love. He loved me, I love him, and I love you. And I don't want you to go through what he has graciously told us is coming. That's not my desire for this world. Knowledge of a world in mourning. Knowledge of a tribulation. Knowledge of the wrath of God that is to come. Gang, that compels me to love people more. And to love people like Jesus did. Because the reality is there's not a single person on the planet who I want to see go through that. And yet I realize everybody on the planet, myself included, deserves it. And it is only by the grace of God that we will be saved from it. We're called to love. 2 Corinthians 5.14, Paul writes, The love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all. Therefore all died. 
He died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. We're called to love. And so as we anticipate our beloved's coming, as we look forward to seeing the Good Shepherd who won our hearts, the glorious King to whom we will be wed, listen, behold, He's coming Climbing on the mountains, leaping on the hills, peering through the lattice as we anticipate His coming, may we love more. More intensely. More purposefully. Let's let people know there is a Jesus who loves them deeply. It is not the message of wrath that they need to hear. It is the message of Christ's love and sacrifice for them. He's coming. He's coming. Anticipate Him. Verse 10 She's still singing the bride. She sings, My beloved responded and said to me. And now the next few verses, she's singing, but it's his words. She's repeating what he said to her. His words. My beloved responded and said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come along. She's repeating the voice that she heard. Do you ever wonder about the sound of his voice? What is that going to be like? It's not going to sound like this, I promise you. Like, that sounds like Rick. How lispy and weird. I don't, what is that? No, no. John describes it as the sound of many waters. Rushing, crashing, waves. I don't, I don't know how. Is it going to be loud? You know, like waves on the shore, like a, like a waterfall? Is it going to be like many rivers, just a sound? A beautiful voice. But this is our witness that we have heard from Jesus. And he has said that he loves us. This is her witness. She's turning around now, the bride, and she's saying, this is what he said to me. This is what my groom told me. It's a great witness. The bride is sharing the words of the groom. That's a key for us, as the bride, that we share the words of the groom. We don't have to make up anything here. Isn't that great? We're not like a startup business thinking, okay, we've got to come up with a core message and get it out. And we already have the message. He gave it to us. I love you. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. His words, not mine. His message. And so I share that message. I speak that message. I don't tell what I've done through Christ, but what He has done to me. There's your message. I don't know how to witness. Tell people why you love Jesus. How hard is that? It's not difficult at all. Anticipation. Why am I excited about His coming? What am I looking forward to? As He says, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come along. And by the way there, at the beginning of His little part of this song, verse 10, I think we're here in the rapture. The words John hears in Revelation chapter 4, Come up here! And up we will go. And in the song, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, come along! And we come to the part of the song that I would call the invitation. We have anticipation. Here is the invitation. Verse 11, For behold, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. The flowers have already appeared in the land. The time has arrived for pruning the vines, and the voice of the turtle dove has been heard in our land. The fig tree has ripened its figs. The vines in blossom have given forth their fragrance. Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come along. And let me just tell you, God doesn't do things accidentally in Scripture. The pictures He uses, when they line up with other pictures in Scripture, the same author wrote this book, and it is not coincidence. 
There are so many things in these two, three verses here that are absolutely astounding. This is the season of the rapture. This is being described here, the season of the rapture. We hear this in all manner of other places in Scripture. He says, the winter is past and the rain is gone. What does that indicate? It indicates that darkness is over. The sun's out. It's bright. You can see things are clear. The darkness has moved along. The clouds have shifted. What is that? What does that mean? Back in Matthew chapter 4, verse 13, tells us leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, quote, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. The winter is past. All the old ways are gone. The new life has come. New life in Jesus Christ. It is there for the asking. The winter is past. The rains are gone. And the voice of the turtle dove has been heard in the land. The word turtle dove, tor, in the Hebrew, T-O-R, and it is simply dove. The voice of the dove is heard in the land. Remember what Peter said at Pentecost? Acts chapter 2, verse 16. This is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. It shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. (laughs) Which allows you to figure out where you are in life. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit. And they shall prophesy the voice of the turtle dove. Heard in the land. He says the fig tree has ripened. The fig tree has ripened. Oh, well, Pastor Rick, this is just kind of a picture of the springtime. A love song picture, right? Wrong. There is more to it than that. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 32, Learn the parable of the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and it puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Israel is the fig tree. Throughout Scripture, and I'm not going to give you a bunch of Scriptures tonight. I'm going to challenge you, go look it up. Get a concordance and look up the fig tree and look at how it applies to Israel. In almost every case in Scripture, the fig tree is Israel. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize Jesus says He's near, right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Which generation, Rick? I think the generation alive at the time that the fig tree began to put forth its leaves. May 14, 1948. Israel became a nation again. And the fig tree, something happened. You may know there's more to it just than that, than just the leaves of the fig tree. It says the fig tree has ripened its figs. Hold that thought. He also says the vines in blossom have given forth their fragrance. The vine? What did Jesus say about the vine? He said, I am the vine, John 15.5, and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. These four things, these four things here, the winter is gone, the light has come, the, the, the um, turtle dove is, is singing, the fig tree is ripened, the vines are in blossom and smell good. All four of these things depict the season of the rapture. Notice this. All four are past tense. All four have happened, he says. These have all happened now. 
These have all happened and we are now in the season that these are behind us. So let me ask you, have these things happened? Has the light of Jesus Christ dawned? Yeah, absolutely. Matthew told us that was the verse we read. Has the voice of the Spirit been heard? Absolutely. Has the fig tree ripened? Oh yeah. Have the vines produced sweet-smelling fruit? Yes, the vine has. Jesus has. The church has. Over 2,000 years. Oh, but there's ugly stuff. Yeah, sometimes you got to trim. Sometimes you got to prune. But the vine has produced amazing fruit across 2,000 years. Changed this world. Imagine a world without Christ. Imagine a world without Christianity. A world where the church had never existed. Where the Spirit had never begun to sing in the land. And that's a world we would be in right now. I don't think that world would even exist anymore. So there has been sweet-smelling fruit. And if all these things have happened, as he says, then get ready, the season is ripe. Get ready to arise. Note also, though, he says in verse 12 that the time has arrived for pruning. And I was going to make a great allusion to talk about pruning a little bit and how the Lord prunes. But the problem is the word there is zamir in the Hebrew, and it's not prune. It's song. Song. Singing. Literally, verse 12, the time has arrived for singing. For singing. Because there will be singing in that day. But don't miss Israel's part in all this. Where have the flowers appeared? Where have the flowers appeared? Look at the verses. In the land. If your translation says on the earth, it's wrong. In the land. The flowers have appeared in the land. Where has the turtle dove been heard? In the land. In the land. When the Bible uses the phrase, in the land, gang, it is never generic. It is always the land, Israel. It is always the land of Israel. God is purposeful in that. His land. The land He promised to the Jewish people. The land He called His own. With Jerusalem as the capital. His city. His land. Anytime the Bible says in the land, it's Israel. And notice, the figs themselves are ripe, not just the leaves. The leaves begin to ripen and we know the summer is near. What does that tell us when the figs themselves are ripe? When the figs are ready to be eaten? When the figs themselves are fruitful? Well, wait, Rick, what are you saying? Are you saying that for the rapture to happen we have to wait for Israel to get figgy with it? Is that the deal there? I kind of thought that was pretty good. Because that's how the hit was you know, in Israel. Getting figgy with it. (laughs) What I'm saying is the invitation, gang. Listen, don't miss this. I'm not saying that Israel has to come to Jesus before the rapture. In fact, the Bible says otherwise. What I'm saying is the invitation remains wide open to Israel. Israel is itself being invited in this section. The Jewish people are being invited just as you and I have been invited, just as the Gentiles have been invited, so the Jewish people are still being invited. Don't think, even though there has been a rejection, don't think that God's saying, well, I'm not going to save any Jews. You know, (laughs) I'm not going to deal with them until I'm done with the church. No. How many Jewish people are part of the church? You know, really, there are three kinds of people in the world. Jews, Gentiles, and Christians. And when a Jewish person gives their life to Jesus Christ, though they may even be called a Messianic Jew, they are a part of the church. They are the bride. 
And so there's a great salvation even going on today. And the voice of the Spirit, my friends, is being heard in the land. The Holy Spirit is on the move in the land of Israel. Figs are ripening. Messianic Jews are fast becoming far more than a minority in the land. You're not going to hear about it on the news. But I'm telling you, there is a growth of Jesus-believing Jews in Israel. Because the voice of the Spirit is being heard in the land. Ezekiel had that extraordinary vision. Remember it in the valley of the dry bones? Mm-hmm. And the bones, he looked out in the valley and God said, what do you see? I see some dry bones. And then the bones, they started rattling. And then all of a sudden the bones, <laughs> what a vision, they came together. And then suddenly sinews began to appear on the bones, connecting them together and oh, skeletons stand up. Can you imagine? I mean, God is just so marvelous. Looking out in a valley that was once bones and now it's an army of skeletons. <laughs> I think I saw that in the seventh voyage of Sinbad when I was a kid. Something like that. (laughs) And then flesh covers all the skeletons, but now they're not much more than zombies. They're just standing there. No life, no breath, no spirit, void of all of this. And the Lord spoke to Ezekiel. Let me read it to you. Ezekiel 37, verse 11. He said to Ezekiel, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones have dried up and our hope has perished. We are completely cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, listen to this, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves and caused you to come up out of your graves, my people. You remember what happened when Jesus was crucified? Tombs opened up in the land. And people started walking around. He says, Then you will know that I, the Lord, I am the Lord when I have opened your graves and caused you to come up out of your graves, my people. But listen, then he says this, verse 14, stunning verse I will put my spirit within you, and you will come to life. And I will place you on your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken, and I have done it, declares the Lord. The invitation is wide open to Israel that the figs might ripen and become fruitful on the tree. The figs themselves. And Paul says in Romans 11, and you should just read the whole thing, but I'll read one verse. If their rejection of Christ, if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance of Christ, what would their acceptance be but life from the dead? Life from the dead. Gang, there will be great singing in the land. In that day, when Israel, lock, stock, and barrel, when the whole of Israel receives the Spirit, when all of His people who would be His people, as Paul says, when all Israel is saved and are crying out the name of Jesus, oh, there will be singing in the land. There was singing in the land this last week. Tuesday, October 18th, 2011, a day to mark on your calendars, Glad Shalit, returned home after five years of captivity in the Gaza Strip. Israeli soldier in his tank and Hamas terrorists crossed over into Israel, crossed the border, pulled him out of his tank, kidnapped him and held him for the past five years. And he came home this week. And what a scene. 
I was driving home. I had dropped off Naomi at school. I'm driving back home. I had the radio on, and live it was going on right there. Galad was, was coming home, and Israelis were weeping and singing in the background. And, and I choked up. I'm like, Rick, you're an old sap. But I'm just driving along, and I got a lump in my throat hearing them sing and hearing the joy. Galad is home. He's home. And the Shalit family all bringing him in and, and the cheers and the joy and the weeping. And some in the media were saying, he's only one soldier. Was that a very good move? Just one soldier, over a thousand terrorists, 1,027 terrorists were released to Gaza in the deal. And Israel got one soldier. And yet, over 80% of Israelis approved of the move. The vast majority of the country said, bring him home, do whatever it takes. Why? Because unlike Hamas, Israel values a single life. Hamas would turn around those same 1,027 and send them back into Israel with suicide bombs strapped on them if they could do it. But Israel says, no, one life matters. One life, one Jew is as important as, as all Jews together. And in that mentality, I hear something else. Luke 15.7 says, There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner. One sinner who repents, who turns back to the Lord, than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. Now, please don't misquote me. I'm not saying righteous people are terrorists. Okay, that's, not where the, that's where it kind of breaks down. What I'm saying is the rejoicing over the one. The rejoicing over the one. And that's what hit me this, uh, yesterday morning was that all this rejoicing over one soldier, and that's the way the Lord is, that's the way heaven is, rejoicing over one who turns to Him. So, my friends, after years of sorrow and mourning, there will be singing in the land when He returns. Verse 14, now the the groom himself breaks in. She's been quoting the groom. Now the groom sings, Oh my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the secret place of the steep pathway, let me see your form, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your form is lovely. And that's how Jesus sees us. It's not how I see myself. Unless I'm looking at myself the way He does. This is how he sees you. Listen, he says, your voice is sweet, your form is lovely. He loves to, you know when we stopped and prayed a few minutes ago? He loves just to hear the voice. In fact, you know what, let me encourage you. Well, I don't pray out loud. Well, then you're denying the Lord of hearing your voice, which to him is sweet. He loves to hear his people pray. He loves to hear us just talk to him. And we sit back and go, that's not my thing. Lots of people gathered around, and I'm not a public speaker. Who's talking about public speaking? Prayer. He loves the sound of your voice. It is sweet to Him. He loves your form. He just loves to see you here. You're walking down the street, completely mindless of of Jesus, perhaps. Your mind on a bunch of things, and He sees you walking down the street, and He goes, She's mine. Isn't she beautiful? He's mine. What a great guy. This is how He sees us. But why would He address me as, Oh, my dove? Oh, my dove. That's interesting. Note this, verse 14. He says, Oh, my dove in the clefts of the rock. Well, we know what Scripture tells us. The rock is Christ. The rock is Christ, where our lives are hidden. Paul says in Colossians 3.3, If you have died and your life is hidden, then your life is hidden with Christ in God. The dove... Well, that's His Spirit. Just as 
The Spirit lighted on Jesus at His baptism in the form of a dove. The dove is a picture of the Holy Spirit in Scripture, but the Spirit enlivens us. The Spirit seals us for marriage. We become filled with the Spirit, so no wonder when Jesus looks at you, looks at me, He says, Oh, my dove. Because I am there in the cleft of the rock. I'm a dove in the cleft of the rock. That's a good way to think of yourself. In this betrothal period, you are a dove in the cleft of the rock. That's you. A dove filled with the Spirit in the cleft of the rock. That is Jesus. And by the way, the groom also calls this in the secret place of the steep pathway. Steep pathway? The way is steep. It's getting steeper. This road is hard. Right, Leslie? Just talking today about stuff going on in Anacortes and Oak Harbor, specifically dances in Anacortes, high school dances, and all the grinding that goes on there. And the current answer is, well, let's just have uh, let's have the students decide what they think is appropriate. No offense, high schoolers, but huh? Let the students decide. I know what I would have decided as a high school student. Well, you know, I don't think grinding. So in fact, you know what they came up with? Can I share this? Okay. You know what they came up with? We're going to allow vertical grinding. Some of you are going, grinding? Isn't that like how you make stuff with the thing? So they're all at the dance going, hey, look at me grinding. No, no. It's very sexual. And they're saying, well, that's okay. We'll, we'll just allow vertical grinding. As long as they're not lying on the floor doing it. What? The way's getting steeper. You look all around you, and it just—if you—if you focus too much on it, it'll really get you down. If you look too much at where our world is headed and what's going on and what's acceptable and what's allowable and all the—after a while, it's just like, oh, I don't want to look anymore. I just want to read a Calvin and Hobbes and forget the day, you know. <laughs> Amen to Calvin and Hobbes. The way is steep, and the way is getting steeper. But gang, in this world. We have the dove in the rock. We have the Spirit, and we're in the cleft of the rock. And yes, the way is steep, but we're protected. We have every reason to hope and no reason to despair. The dove is where our peace comes from. The rock is where our strength comes from. And we have both in this world, peace and strength. Amen? So let not your heart be troubled. By the way, Sean Hannity was not the first person to say that. (laughs) Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. Remember? And that's where we're headed. The way is steep. But hey, there's something else about the way that's steep. It means we're going up. Right? That's good news. Anticipation, invitation, and suddenly, interruption. Interruption. Verse 15. Catch the foxes for us. The little foxes that are ruining the vineyards while our vineyards are in blossom. Now, some believe this is the chorus who jumps in and sings this verse. Others say it's the bride herself singing this verse. Either way, there's a detour that suddenly takes place. It's for good reason, but it's still a detour. What do you mean? Listen again. He's been singing. He's inviting. She is allured by him. She's anticipating. And here comes the invitation. Then all of a sudden, catch the foxes for us. The little foxes that are ruining the vineyard while our vineyards are in blossom. Now, Marital application of this verse is awesome. It's a great one. I've used it in weddings. Catch the foxes. Husbands, clear out the vineyard. You don't let 
the little foxes come between you and your wife. Whether the little fox happens to be in a magazine or on the internet, you don't let the little foxes come between you and your wife. Clear them out. Clear out the foxes. And you know what? The foxes could be anything. Gentlemen, it could be another woman. Ladies, it could be another man who perhaps gives you the kind of emotional security that your husband's lacking. Clear out the foxes. It could be your job. Just taking too much time, too much emphasis, too much focus. Clear out the foxes. It could be family. Outside of the husband and wife marriage, it could be a mom and dad, in-laws that are messing up the vineyard. Clear them out. One man to one wife, those two are one before the Lord. And it's great advice, you know? It really is. Clear out the foxes. Catch the little foxes. Anything that will steal the fruit of a good marriage. Anything that will decimate the vine or deteriorate the vineyard. And taken spiritually, the little foxes are all those things, the hindrances, the temptations, the challenges of our spiritual life and our betrothal with Jesus. Anything that might take our eyes off of our shepherd king. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.13, you know the verse, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. And so we might find ourselves even praying, verse 15, oh Lord, catch the little foxes. Drive them out of the vineyard. Keep my vineyard clean and pure. But I believe verse 15 is an interruption. An interruption because while it's well intended, it interrupts the invitation of the groom. The groom is inviting the bride to come along. He says, arise my darling, come along. And she says, or the chorus says, one of the two, yeah, yeah, great. Could you catch the little foxes for me? He says, come along. She says, but we've got to clear out the vineyard. He says, come along, and perhaps it's the chorus saying, yeah, but there's a mess over here. Could you deal with that? He wants to take her off. Somebody's wanting her to stay right there and focus on the problems. What's the best way to keep the little foxes out of the vineyard? The best way, keep your eyes on the groom. The best way is not to keep your eyes on the little foxes. Gentlemen, if you have a problem with pornography, you want to know what the number one way is to stop dealing with pornography? Start looking at Jesus instead. You fix your eyes on Jesus. If you in a marital relationship have someone that's, that's drawing you away, alluring you away, stop looking. Start looking at Jesus. If you're worried about your spouse and maybe their lack of attention to you, instead of looking at all the problems and trying to fix everything, how about looking at Jesus? Don't look at the little foxes. What did Jesus say? Matthew 6.13 Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Jesus didn't pray, catch the little foxes for us, Lord. He said, don't lead us into temptation. Well, if He's leading us, then we're going to go wherever He goes. That's my focus. Not all this superfluous sin. Not all these extra temptations. It's the right prayer. Do not lead us into temptation. Because my eyes are leaning, are leaning on Him, looking at Him leading me, and not on the temptations that might be luring me. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. 
I hope a, a few verses here that are just getting cemented into your heart. Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Let's lay it aside. He doesn't say, let's look at each one and fix them one at a time. We'll start with this one, deal with that, we'll go to the next. That's what Benjamin Franklin did. He did. He said, I dealt with one sin at a time. When I took care of one sin, I went on to the next sin. You know what the problem with that is? There's always another sin. You'll never get done. So stop looking at the little sins, the little thoughts, and start looking at Jesus. Lay aside every encumbrance. The sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. You know what just happened? We just went back to anticipation. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him who has endured such hostility by sinners against Himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. If our eyes are on the groom, if we remain in the embrace of Jesus... He won't go there, so we won't go there. He won't sin, so we won't sin. Wait a minute, you're saying that we won't, that we can actually not sin? Absolutely. Absolutely. Any one of us could be sinless. It's very simple. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Why do we sin? Because we take our eyes off Jesus. Because in those moments we think maybe we know better or we just forget or we get distracted. The little foxes make noise and we rush off to clear out the vineyard. Our eyes are off Christ and next thing we know we're tangled up with the foxes. Stop looking at the foxes. Isaiah 26 verse 3. Great verse. I want to read it in the King James. I love how it reads, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. Again, if our focus is on the sin instead of on the Savior, if we're looking at the little foxes, then our eyes are not on the bridegroom. The bridegroom is saying, come along with me. And either the chorus or the bride interrupts the invitation and says, but we got some problems that have to be dealt with, taken care of here. And precious bride, guess what happens when we do that? Number four in your notes. Separation. Separation. Verse 16. She's singing. My beloved is mine and I am his. He pastures his flock among the lilies until the cool of the day when the shadows flee away. Turn, my beloved. Be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of Bether. This is a surprising turn in the song. Instead of rushing out the window through the lattice and onto the hills with the groom, the bride says, Wait. Oh, my beloved loves me. I love him too, but but until the shadows flew away, wait, wait, turn, turn. She is asking him to turn around and go ahead and dance on the hills. She's not coming with him. He's invited her. Come, let's let's run, let's dance, let's sing. It's the perfect day for it. And she says, not yet. Wait a minute. Until the cool of the day turn, dance on the mountains of Bather. Bather in the Hebrew means division or separation. The divided mountains. It's as though the bride is saying, I'm so excited about your coming, (laughs) but not yet. I really am, but I've still got so much wedding preparation to do, and I've got little foxes to deal with, and so let me deal with these things. I hear your invitation, but just, just not yet. Don't we do the same thing sometimes? 
No, not yet, Jesus. Not yet. I just need to. I have to. I've got to. You might not even say that out loud. And I would imagine most believers probably don't say, wait, wait, Jesus. But in our hearts it's like, still got some stuff here. Or the distractions of life. And we're not thinking and that anticipation begins to wane in our lives. And in essence, we're saying to Jesus, wait. That's why the Scriptures deal with this and talk about it so much. The Hebrew writer said in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, For this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. Don't drift away from the excitement of revelation. Don't drift away from the thrill of anticipating His coming. Don't drift away from it. Don't drift away from Matthew 24. Man, park your your seat there. Camp there. Stay there. Anticipate Him. Tell you what, if, if believers just did everything Jesus said in Matthew 24, wow, we'd flip this world over. Serving, caring, looking. That's what we're called to. But we say, Wait. We can drift away from the window. We become less watchful as the lure of the world distracts us from the allure of the Lord. And again, the key, the key is not looking at the little foxes, it's keeping our eyes on Jesus. Titus 2.13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Gang, interruptions to our faith and separation from the Lord, even for seemingly good reasons, lead us to fretfulness and worry and anxiety. In fact, mark this, if you're worried about something going on in your life, you've probably taken your eyes off Jesus. Your focus on Him has been interrupted if you're fretting. If you're stressed out, it's because you've forgotten to look at Him. And I do it all the time. I'm so stressed out about this word. How are we going to make this work? And, and then, oh, well, that's right. That's right. You see, that, that's the beauty. That's, that's why we meet as often as we do. That's why the Hebrew writer says, don't forsake the assembling of the saints. It's not so that you, your name can get checked off on the rolls. It's because we desperately need each other. We need the encouragement of worship. We need to be in the Word, and we need to hear once again, Jesus is coming. So that our attention gets pulled off of ourselves, and all those interruptions are silenced in the joy of the voice of the turtle dove as he speaks here in the land, in this land, in our hearts. But all these things, if we have interruption and separation, it leads to, number five, trepidation. Trepidation. Verse 1 of chapter 3, On my bed, night after night, I sought Him, whom my soul loves. I sought Him, but did not find Him. I must arise now and go about the city. In the streets and in the squares, I must seek Him whom my soul loves. I sought Him, but I did not find Him. She is fretting. She's worried. She's freaking out. And it's her fault. Because the bride put off the groom. He came for her and she said, wait. And now when she wants him, she can't find him. He's absent from her. Well, Jesus wouldn't do that. I think he does. I think when we say, Jesus, wait, he says, okay. And he takes a step back. Why would he do that? So that we recognize how desperately we need him. When he's not there, 
Where are you, Lord? And we start to look and we start to worry. And so the groom accepts the bride's put off for a time. Just as Jesus honors our separation, knowing it will bring about trepidation. Why? Because He wants to develop longing in you. He doesn't want to be your second choice or your third or fourth or fifth choice. He wants to be your first choice. He wants us to love Him so much that we do just long for those moments when we can sing. Long to get back into the Word. Long to be in prayer with brothers and sisters. Long just to sit in His presence and listen for His voice. And it works, by the way. When Jesus pulls back a bit, when we feel His absence, it absolutely works. Four times the bride repeats herself in these two verses. Four times. I sought Him, she says. I sought Him. I must seek Him. I sought Him. The word in the Hebrew is bekas. And it means literally to desire. I went looking for Him. I desired Him. I needed to find Him. Now, this little section here of this part of the song has been described by many as a bad dream that the bride was having. She's actually in her bed at night and she's having a nightmare that she can't find Him. She's worried. She wakes up in a cold sweat because she has feared that she perhaps, maybe she lost Him. Have you ever in your Christian life wondered if you lost Him? Or questioned your salvation, the whole once saved, always saved, versus you can lose your salvation. And people ask the question, and if you've been here long, you've probably heard me say, hey, if we know Jesus, why are we worried about losing our salvation at all? Why is it even an issue? If you love Him, it shouldn't matter. It won't matter. But those moments when we worry, and and that's what seems to be going on, she certainly seems to be in a dreamy state at the opening of chapter 3 here. But even if she's dreaming, the Bible tells us that disturbed dreams are often the result of stress or anxiety in our lives. The Bible says that? Yeah, we read it in Ecclesiastes. Chapter 5, verse 3, For a dream cometh through the multitude of busyness. A dream cometh through the multitude of busyness. Things going on. Stress happening. And we start to have these bizarre dreams. I had one the other the other night. Monday night, actually. You see, about six months ago, my in-law's dog died. Oscar. He's gone. And last week, my parents' dog, Oliver, Oscar and Oliver, he died. So he's gone. And Monday... I guess I was thinking about it, didn't know that I was, but Monday night I dreamed Reggie died. It's really kind of a tragic dream. I went into his little room where he sleeps and he was flat on his back. <laughs> Just like that. And I kid you not, I dreamed this vividly. Because what was going on out there in the life, you know, it, it impacts our dreams. Isn't that true with you? Please say it is. <laughs> not that you did boss going, no. You're some kind of weird pastor, I'll tell you that. <laughs> Guy up there, I don't know. <laughs> but whether dreaming or awake, the bride is fretful. She's anxious. She's lost and she's longing for the groom. And then she finds, verse 3, the watchman. The watchmen who make the rounds in the city, they found me. And I said, have you seen him whom my soul loves? Now now hang on a second. Everything's here for a reason. Who are the watchmen? Why are they in the song? Why is this part of this romantic, poetic, and beautiful picture? And I've read several different commentaries, different ideas of who the watchmen might perhaps be. And you know what I think? 
think the watchman is, is the church. And I think it's us watching out for each other. Believers. And even more so, I would take it to another level, it's those who shepherd in a church. Those who lead in a church. And I'm not talking by title alone, by the way. And let me just say this to you all. We have 11 shepherds. We'll have more. Um, If you're not a shepherd and you're going, well, I'd really like to be a shepherd, then be one. What's the title for? It's it's an unnecessary title. And that's that's what I look for anywhere. Someone who's already doing it. Someone who's already shepherding and looking after the flock and caring for people and involved and engaged in ministry. When I sit down, I say, hey, that, that guy should be... We should give him a title. <laughs> really mess him up. Give him a title. No. <laughs> it's not about the title. But Hebrews thirteen seventeen says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. There's a responsibility there. Those who keep watch. The watchman. She's racing through the city looking for her beloved, and it's the watchman who she runs into. The watchman who happened to be there at the right time. And note, it says, the watchman who make the rounds of the city found me. They found her. Their eyes were open. As she is in her distress, they see, they find her, they come to her. Who shepherds in a church? It's not those who do so by title, but those who do so by deed. Those who lovingly keep watch over a sleepwalking bride. And sometimes we walk in our sleep. Sometimes we're not paying attention and sometimes we're really fretful and nervous and every single one of us, I believe, are called to be watchmen over the flock. Caring one for another, loving each other, keeping an eye out, keeping watch. Well, they found her and I think we might be able to imply that they gave her some direction because from there she immediately finds the Beloved. She immediately comes upon Him. Whether whether or not they actually helped her note this, though, she was anxious, she was worried, she was fretful until, until she found Him whom my soul loves. Verse 4, Scarcely had I left them. When I found Him whom my soul loves, I held on to Him and would not let Him go. And gang, there's the key. More so than not looking at the little foxes, more so than just keeping your eyes on Jesus, how about this? Don't let Him go. You grab on. And you hang on, and you simply don't let go. It reminds me of one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture. Jesus there, Resurrection Sunday. Remember this? And Mary from Magdala is there. And, And Mary is just, she's distraught. She's fretting. She doesn't know where her beloved is. She doesn't know where they've taken him. And it says that she turned around. John 21.14 and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Whether it was because of the tears in her eyes or He was disguised or perhaps His face was changed somewhat because of the beatings on the cross. Who knows? But she couldn't recognize Him. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Really? Got to be one strong little Mary to do that. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. I love that. He said her name. And the moment he says her name, she knows who it is. 
It was that instant recognition. His voice, the sound of his voice calling her name. That's what I want to hear. I want to hear him call my name. And I know the moment he does, I'll know who it is. I will recognize his voice. But this is interesting. Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me. (laughs) Stop clinging to me. I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene came, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that He had said these things to her. Don't let Him go. But, but He told her to let go. Yeah, because He was still there. What? Because He was there. Because Jesus wasn't going anywhere, not yet. He knew there were still 40 days out ahead of Him. 40 days of being there. 40 days of her being able to sit right by Him, be there in His presence, along with the apostles. To walk with Him, to see Him, to to experience all the joy of Him being alive. 40 more days. He wasn't going anywhere. He's right there. And so He says, don't cling to Me, because here I am. And there's something in this for us, gang. What Mary experienced in that moment is what the bride experienced when she found Him whom her soul loved. What did she experience? I held on to him and I would not let him go until I brought him into my mother's house, into the room of her who conceived me. What did she experience? Number six, restoration. Restoration. But listen, a restored relationship with Jesus is as easy as turning around and holding on to him. But there's one problem. You're not strong enough. You can't hold on to him. I mean, honestly, you can't hold on to God. Who do you think you are? (laughs) We're talking about Almighty God. Really, you think you can get your arms around Him? You think you can hold on to Jesus and all His power and might? Man, John saw Jesus in the Revelation and fell down like a dead man because it was overwhelming just to see Him. And and you, you want to hold on to Him? Wait, Rick, you're confusing me. You said to hold on to Him. I know. I have to laugh a little bit though when I when I think of myself in the position saying, I will not let you go, Jesus. I'm just like Jacob. You know? Jacob's wrestling all night long with God there in Genesis 32. And in verse 26 he said, the Lord said, Let me go, for the day the, the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. I'm not gonna let go. Gotta bless me. I got the upper hand, got you in a chokehold. Remember what happened? He touched the socket of his hip, and Jacob would limp the rest of his life. That's power. All he did was go, okay, all right. Bing, ah! It's like when Anna Marie jumps on my back, which she does often. She jumps on my back. Will you back me? No. Boom, she's on my back. I said, no. She's there. There's only one way to get her off. I just reach around right behind her right or left knee and just poke, and she's gone. And she lets well, that's kind of like it, only it didn't tickle. It wrenched his hip joint. God just touched him. And the game was over. And Jacob limped away from that place with a lifelong reminder in his hip that God's little finger could easily have crushed the life out of him. Well, what's the point? The only way for me to never let him go is to trust that He will never let me go. He's the one holding on. 
and, and it flips the whole picture. Once again, just like Sunday, when we're talking about our desire for our beloved, and suddenly we recognize His desire is for me. I want to hold on to Him until I recognize He's already holding on to me. Jesus said as much, I give eternal life to them, John 10.28, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of My hand. My Father who has given them to Me is greater than all, and no one's able to snatch them out of the Father's hand too. So if you think God's going to let go of you, you're dreaming. The only reason you can hold on to Him is because He's already holding on to you. Jesus said to Mary, I've got you. Let go. Stop clinging. I'm here. I'm right here. Until I have brought him to my mother's house and in the room of her who conceived me, this is what the bride does. Now this is interesting. She finds her beloved. She throws her arms around him. She will not let him go. But she doesn't take him to a seedy hotel. She doesn't take him out to a swinging hot spot. She doesn't even lead him off to a private place where the two of them can be alone and people might talk. She takes him to mama. She takes him to her mother's house. The most pure and secure place in her world. That's where she takes him. And she knows if she takes him to her mother's house, no one's going to doubt her intentions. If I take him there where mom is and where I grew up, this is a safe place where I can be chased as the betrothed with my beloved until the actual marriage. What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying a couple of things. Number one, when you find Jesus, take Him home with you. Take Him home with you. Don't take Him out somewhere where you can be alone and no one knows. You take Him home. You take Him to the common place. He will one day take you to His Father's house. Until then, take Him home to Mom. Bring Him to the place of your normal life. Don't leave Him to some notion of religious life. Man, this is so tragic, and so many of us have done this, so many Christians do this. Come to Jesus, fall in love with Jesus, and then compartmentalize Jesus for my Sundays and my Wednesdays. Or just for my Sundays. Or just for my Christmas and my Easter. That's that's when I do the Jesus thing. No. But I'm not going to take him home. (laughs) There's stuff in my house he might see. There's things going on in my house that I... So I'm going to keep him here. And I'll go out to him and we'll have our one-on-one time. But I'm not going to take him to work either. Don't ask me to take him to work. Into my common life. I keep him separated from my business, my family, my, my social outlets. No, you take him home. Take him home. Take him into the everyday of your existence. Jesus said in John 10.10, I can that they may have life and have it abundantly. Which means every aspect of our lives. Not just... This over here. Everything. If we don't take Jesus home with us, you know, we risk the mountains of Bather. We, missed, we, we risk the separation. And He doesn't want to be separated from us. So the bride takes the groom to her mother's home, introduces her to him to the life that she knew. But also note this, to my mother's house, into the room of her who conceived me. So when you find Jesus, take Him home. And secondly again, go back to your birthplace. You go back to your birthplace. If you have felt like you're separated from Him, but you find Him again, and you're restored in relationship to Him, you go back to the birthplace. 
Colossians 2.6, As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. We've gone over this before, haven't we, Les? I mean, isn't this the key? If your passion for Jesus is starting to wane, go back to when you first fell in love. Jesus put it this way in Revelation chapter 2, Remember your first love. Go back to your birthplace. The place that you were born again. And with that same simplicity and trust and joy and faith, love and, and hope that you had as a, as a baby believer, the same anticipation that you had for Him back at the beginning of your walk, go back there again. This is our story. Our story. The anticipation of the bride, the invitation of the groom, the interruption of the little foxes. Separation and trepidation that always follow when we find ourselves separated or apart from Jesus. But the groom had one thing on his mind, and that's restoration. And so the second canticle ends with the bride in the loving embrace once again of the groom. And how does he feel about all this? Verse 5, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the hinds of the field, that you will not arouse or awaken my love until she pleases. Would you repeat after me? I am my beloved's. I am my beloved's. And his desire is for me. What an awesome, wonderful, secure, comforting thought, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for singing the song. Thank you for desiring us. Thank you for being patient with us when we skip along, when we put you off. Lord, forgive us and restore us. And may we live lives overflowing with anticipation. And may we come when you call. In Jesus' name.